Richard Hanania is a former fellow at the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University, the current president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, and also the host of their podcast. This is Richard Hanania. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, all right. I'm here with Richard Hanania. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to talk to you because, as I'm sure everyone knows, we're in the midst of this massive withdrawal effort from Afghanistan after being there for uh, you know, more than two decades. Um, there was an apparent attack that killed some U.S. soldiers this week. I want to get into that with you. Um, but the first thing I kind of want to take you know, some time talking about is well, why is this taken so long? Um, you reference uh, on your Twitter where you, you talk a lot about the Afghanistan papers. You reference a quote from Michael Flynn, who said something about Afghanistan. Uh, he said, uh, there is a machinery that is behind what we do, and it keeps us participating in the conflict because it generates wealth. Um, what is that? Maybe that's a good starting point. What does that quote mean? What is that referring to? Well, you know, I, I don't know what exactly Michael Flynn was talking about, but, uh, you know, what it, what it sounds like is, look, there was a, a military establishment built up uh, for the Cold War. Uh, in the late 80s, the early 90s, the threat disappeared. Um, and then, you know, military spending went down for a little while, but it's still uh, the military presence abroad was still um, very broad. And um, after 9-11, you know, it's, it went up again. So this was this made a lot of people a lot of money. Our military budget is something like $800 billion a year. The wars are uh, much costlier on top of that. They've got, usually um, counted the Iraq and Afghanistan wars outside of that. And they've, they've cost, uh, the, the costs have been in the trillions. And there's a entire ecosystem in Washington that opposes any kind of withdrawal from anywhere or pullback from any military commitments abroad. Um, and so this includes the think tanks, the think tanks, they have, they have good relationships with the, uh, the generals, the uh, intelligence community. Um, they get, they often get funded from weapons manufacturers, often get funded by foreign governments. The media uh, is based on the uh, relationships with the intelligence community and the military. They rely on classified information for their reporting. They, they rely on uh, having good sources, having people embedded uh, within the government that talk to them. So the the, the people in the the, the media who um, report on foreign affairs tend to share the same view as the American government. You have the American government itself, the, the Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA, the national security uh, bureaucracy. They have their own interests. Um, and so you have you have you know lobbying groups of, of, of foreign countries, lobbying groups of weapons manufacturers. So there's a lot of people who get rich off of uh, American conflict and what the U.S. is doing abroad. Uh, so in the specific uh, specific case of Afghanistan, uh, nobody was really paying attention to the war. Uh, we got distracted by Iraq, uh, but basically um, the, it started out with the Bush administration, and from the Bush administration on, presidents were making short-term decisions. Often they didn't want to stay in Afghanistan; they didn't know what the mission was. Uh, but they were talked into it and it was too hard to pull out because, well, you know, you'd see maybe a situation like this and that would be politically difficult. Uh, so the um, so the Bush administration, I mean, well, you know, why we even went into Afghanistan is interesting because the U.S. just refused to negotiate with the Taliban. Um, even even after beat them on the battlefield, the U.S. refused to, you know, accept their surrender. They would surrender and then the U.S. would put them in jail. And so, I, you know, it was just some kind of just, you know, this uh, stupid sort of reflective response to 9-11. Um, after the Bush administration, Obama came into office and he was a little bit skeptical of the generals and the wars and what they were doing. And they really boxed him in. 
they went out of their way to cultivate allies in Congress and in the media to try to make his life as difficult as possible. He ended up surging in Afghanistan. Uh, the next president, Trump, came along. He was also skeptical, but you know the generals also worked on him too. He also ended up surging in Afghanistan throughout the Obama and Trump presidencies. Uh, things got worse. The casualties, uh, civilian casualties went up, and then under Obama, uh, American casualties went up before they went down again under Trump when civilian casualties went up under, uh, under Trump. And so Biden, who was around um, during those Obama debates, he was actually the one who was saying, look, we shouldn't be surging in Afghanistan. We should take a much more limited mission. And he's been sitting there for 10 years, basically been proven right um, in everything that he said. And I think he was determined to end the war. And that's how we finally got out. There are a number of things in that um, that, that I want to talk to you about. The, the first thing that maybe deserves a little bit more attention is the fact that the Taliban, uh, the, the refusal to negotiate with them uh, early on in the war effort. And you spoke to the fact that they were, um, they surrendered at one point, or they were willing to surrender. And I forget who, but uh, someone in the Bush administration said something like, well, we're not going to, you know, we don't do negotiated surrenders, uh, mm -hmm. something along those lines. Um, what exactly did we miss out on there? What, what were the terms they were trying to come to agreement to? Yeah, well, I mean, you don't know until the negotiations go forward, but the, the uh, you know, the idea was that they basically get some kind of amnesty, they get some kind of, uh, you know, they were able to live out, you know, their lives in Kandahar, or, uh, or whatever in the Afghan Pakistan border area. So, you know, just it's something just like along the lines of personal survival. Um, and we didn't, we didn't give them that, you know, so it's, it's, uh, we, you know, why, why we did this, I mean, it was, um, you know, after 9-11, a lot of people are probably too young to remember the mood of the country was very, very angry. One reason I think actually we went into Iraq uh, was that I think Afghanistan was a little bit too easy. It actually seemed very easy at the time. The, Af the uh, Taliban melted away and there wasn't really a, a major insurgency until much later. So everyone thought just Afghanistan had gone great and that was the end of it. Um, and then we, you know, we needed to keep that momentum going. I think the Bush administration sort of subconsciously realized that this was good politics for them um, to keep people afraid of terrorism. Bush's approval rating after 9-11 hit something like 90% and then Iraq turned into a disaster, but then it went down. But in the short run, you know, it, it, the keeping the war on terror on the on the front pages of the news was good politics for a Republican administration. Um, so yeah, this was a this was a you know major missed opportunity, and you know I, there was also you have to think back in the 1990s there was a lot of. Uh, media reports about the Taliban, people didn't like their treatment of women, people didn't like their human rights violations. So they were already seen as sort of outlaws or like you know, somewhat of a terrorist uh, regime. Only three countries in the world had recognized them. Um, and one of them, I think they were Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Pakistan, I believe. So the US didn't even recognize uh, the Taliban. So they were already seen as sort of terrorist-ish. And then after the 9-11 attacks, um, you know, and then, then, you know, all this other stuff about women and all their, you know, repression came along and it just became, you know, we have to go in there and we have to do something. You didn't have to overthrow the Taliban. You could have, um, you could have negotiated with them. You could have just gone, you know, you didn't even have to overthrow them. You could have gone into the uh, region of the country where Osama bin Laden and the Al Qaeda, the Arab fighters uh, were located and try to get them and then left the rest of the country alone. We didn't do any of that. We, we invaded uh, the country. We overthrew the Taliban. And then we set these maximalist goals um, that were, you know, we were trying to build a democracy with all these uh, aspects of human rights and a stable government that you're know, based on elections and divisions, you know, divisions of power and all this stuff that, you know, we're used to from the West. And that was just completely unrealistic. I mean, there was a spectrum of what we could have tried to do from just, you know, go get bin Laden to, uh, you know, everything. And we took the far end of the spectrum. We took the most ambitious mission possible. And it's, you know, it's pretty crazy to look back in retrospect, but, you know, the, the, there was, I think, a certain hubris about it.
Yeah, and w- what is amazing is just when we entered Afghanistan in the first place, and you know, October of two thousand one, we were saying to the Taliban, uh, you know, turn over Bin Laden, and they said something like, "Well, okay, give us evidence that he was behind September 11th. Maybe they would have gone through with it. Maybe they wouldn't have. But instead of providing evidence, um, we invaded. Did at that point when we first jumped in. Do you think that uh, military planners and people in the Bush administration understood that this was going to turn into uh, a long-term effort? Were there people pining for that in the beginning? Uh, you know, I don't know if people were thinking that carefully about it. So when, when Iraq came along, there was an idea that this was going to be, for, among some people, not all people, that this would be a long-term effort to build a you know, new kind of country in the in the Middle East. That was Some of that was there before the war, but usually most of that thinking came after Iraq um, had been overthrown. No, I don't think they, I don't think that they thought about it that, that carefully. Um, you know, even like the kind of government they would have in Afghanistan, uh, you know, it doesn't look like, you know, Bush engaged in it that much or the top officials engaged in it that much. They just thought it was done. You know, you have this sort of template from, uh, you know, like uh, Kosovo and places like this where uh, the international community goes and it just has peacekeepers and like, you know, they have a template, they say, we're going to design this kind of government. And it's sort of seen as like a thing that the international community does. And that's like, that sort of works in places where there's not that much of a violent resistance where it's not that hard. And so I think it was just sort of, you know, hide handed over to the international community and it, it'll sort of be easy and it'll build itself. It didn't necessarily need to be the U.S. being there forever, but just conditions never got good where the U.S. could just leave. Um, and yeah, that's how we sort of drifted into the forever occupation. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I was just talking about with a friend earlier today is and we were talking about China and how their elites are whatever you think of them, they're highly competent. And we're, we're at one point in time in American history, we had very competent elites. But the thing that was striking, uh, and you talked about this with the Afghanistan paper, is you have people like Donald Rumsfeld saying, uh, I don't know who the bad guys in Afghanistan are. How, how I, I've, I've never been a part of this kind of decision making before. How did these people say, I don't know who the bad guys are, but let's keep committing trillions of dollars and you know, all this political capital to this mission. How does that happen? Yeah, it's very strange because the arguments, you know, if you pay attention to this stuff closely, the arguments for getting into any particular war zone are sort of inconsistent with arguments about, you know, another conflict. Uh, so you'll, you know, in uh, Afghanistan right now, we just had that attack on the airport. It's by ISIS, uh, by the Taliban's enemy, right? I, uh, the ISIS affiliate there. And people are saying, well, now you have to stay in Afghanistan to fight ISIS. Well, okay, you have to fight the Taliban. The Taliban is the enemy of ISIS. The Taliban executed uh, one of ISIS's leaders um, as they took control of the, as they took control of Afghanistan recently. Um, and then in like Syria, you know, you'll, you'll, they'll say there's a terrorist from Syria, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. We have to, you know, be tough on the, the, the government in Damascus. And the government in Damascus has been fighting these terrorists the whole time. You know, after 9-11, we went to Texas Saddam Hussein, who's been an enemy of Al-Qaeda. Uh, so, I, you know, what these people do is I think they just, you know, sort of get people scared and they say, you know, there's this Muslim terrorism thing. And then, you know, just you know, people will just say, okay, go do whatever the military has to do. And sometimes it makes no sense. Sometimes you're on the side of the terrorists. In the U.S., in the in the Syrian uh, civil war, we were basically on the side of Islamists and we were, you know, funneling weapons that ended up in their hands and the government was fighting the Islamists. And, you know, nobody cares. Everyone just sees it and they say, okay, yeah, they also say, you know, Assad's bad and, you know, Saddam Hussein's bad. So there's also that too, but like everyone's bad. And so the answer is, the answer is what? I mean, the answer is, you know, I think stop 
uh, stop starting civil wars and stop keeping them going. Um, but uh, the, their idea is something like the opposite, you know, try to overthrow, try to overthrow governments in some places, keep civil wars going in other places and always have a military, American military presence or always be funding uh, armed groups or always be sanctioning somebody. It's, it's really crazy. And you look at these conflicts and they seem to, you know, in, in Afghanistan, they'll say, you know, we have to stay there because of Al Qaeda. And then in Syria, you know, you fight the side that's fighting Al Qaeda. It's really quite crazy. Um, and I think, I think if you understand it as a machine, like uh, maybe that's what the Flint quote was getting at. If you understand it as a machine oriented to just keep war going, I think it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And on that point, one of the things that is very, uh, I think it's just become sort of like grained, uh, ingrained in our uh, intuition about politics in America is, okay, people who uh, like politicians who accept you know, big donations from like banks, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton with the you know, speeches to Goldman Sachs, there's an understanding that, okay, this is going to, this, these donations at, at a minimum, they're a signal that this politician shares the values of Wall Street and they're going to push policies that benefit them. That's why they're making the donations. We have less of an understanding when it comes to, uh, you know, weapons manufacturers, companies like Boeing, um, not just donating to politicians, but making sure that they have, um, you know, factories and are providing jobs in a lot of different places around the country so that people, politicians don't want to curb, you know, the government contracts to them. Is this a, a part of the machine that you think can be uh, raised into political consciousness in America where people understand, oh, you know, this politician is taking money from Raytheon. Of course, they're yeah. for Afghanistan. Yeah, it's even bigger. I think it's there's there's a lot of stuff that's even bigger than the politicians getting money, which is the generals who get jobs um, after they retire. Basically, you know, uh, close to 100% of them now are hired by weapons manufacturers. And these are the experts and, you know, they have this prestige and they go on TV and they go in front of Congress and, you know, they're always they're always um, advocating for the next war or continuing a continuing a conflict. Yeah, it's there's there's a lot going on. And just, you know, even in the executive branch in the last administration, the uh, uh, Raytheon lobbyists became the Secretary of Defense, um, uh, that was uh, Mark Esper, and then you know, then the, just uh, she, uh, the guy who came after him, uh, Sheehan, was also was a was I think from Boeing. Um, so this you know this the, you know these are they're basically staffing the government and the uh, national security bureaucracy with these people from these corporations. Yeah, I think you know it, it's important to raise people's consciousness about that. One bad thing uh, you know that makes it difficult is there's so much partisanship um, that people will use sort of the national security establishment to attack the other side. So during the uh, Trump presidency, Democrats really loved the uh, the generals and the, and the CIA and all these people because they saw them as anti-Trump. Um, and then, so they, they raised their prestige and they said, you know, you can't go against our intelligence community, they're professionals, they're doing such great things. Uh, and now you see with Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, the Republicans sort of smell blood and they say this could be politically difficult for Biden. And, you know, they're, they're turning around and they're, they're trusting, you know, what the generals are saying, what the intelligence community is saying, and sort of holding these people up and saying, you know, Biden is, is betraying them. Um, so the fact that, you know, partisanship is so strong and that drives so much of our politics, I think makes it difficult for, for anybody to really focus on what the problem is, which is these people who are fighting, you know, endless wars without, without any possible strategic purpose. Does that pressure you to see people going in the Bush era and, and liberals being really against you know, surveillance and wars abroad, et cetera? And then once Obama becomes president, you know, oh, we'll, you know, kind of forget about those things. We trust Obama to do this. And then Trump becomes president, switches back again. It's very, um, it feels very cynical. 
It is. Although I will say that even during the Trump, like the de- if you look at votes in Congress, whenever there's a vote on spying or uh, continuing a war, Democrats are always more uh, in favor of defending civil liberties, more um, in favor of things like bringing the troops home. That was true during the Trump presidency. That was true during the Obama presidency. So, the, so I, you know, the two sides are not exactly the same and that the Republicans are, I think, more completely captured uh, by this industry. And there's more of a sort of anti-war movement w- within the left. But you're but your larger point, um, I think, I think is correct. Um, we, we see we see this with a lot of things. We see this with like government spending, where Republicans care about government spending. When Democrats are in office and Republicans are in office, they just completely forget about it, right? The Tea Party just goes away, and they all become Trump supporters. And you know, they, they don't care about government spending or deficits or when Trump's in office. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think I think. You know, uh, the, the politics I don't, doesn't have to be this way. The U.S. American politics wasn't always this way. The the um, uh, so it was actually you know probably more in the other direction where everybody supported you know the American uh, military presence abroad. But you know, there's other countries where people you know work together and it's more about ideas than there's just this constant tribalism. Um, I think you know we're in a bad place and it's not just you know it just doesn't have effects on foreign policy, but basically everything. And, and let's talk about the media's role in all of this, because one of the things that's been surprising, I don't know if it's surprising for you, but uh, to see the media for the first real time sort of turn on, on Biden. And it's because of, you know, of all the things you could turn on him for that, in my opinion, this is not it. Um, w- was that something that surprised you? Uh, you know, a little bit the extent of it. I mean, I knew they, they the media was generally pro-war. I mean, if you look at these, uh, you know, they have, they look at these people who cover national security, they have good, like I said, good relationships with the generals, the national security community. They also often have relationships with foreign governments, with uh, groups on the ground that the U.S. is supporting. Um, so they, they become, they sort of start to identify, um, you know, with with uh, these people in these foreign countries and the people that they think the U.S. is helping. Uh, so, you know, you look at these people like, uh, uh, for NBC, like Richard Engel and uh, and Andrea Mitchell. I mean, you see the sort of the emotion in their face when they report on this. They really, really don't like the withdrawal. And so the media is usually aligned with the Democrats, obviously. Uh, but this is one place where they show um, actual independence because they really do care about maintaining the U.S. presence abroad. Um, yeah, I mean, the role of the media is, is, is absolutely I mean, most people don't have uh, firsthand experience with uh, Afghanistan or Russia or China. The only thing, you know, they're not paying attention day to day. The only way you get your information from is what's on the news. And if the news is just basically these reporters talking about how terrible everything is going, and then it's bringing on the generals and the and the people from the last few administrations who are coming on and saying, you know, this is horrible. You know, we're, we're losing in Afghanistan. There's going to be a terrorist. Threat. People tend to buy that. Um, so yeah, the media has a you know terrible role to play. I think um, whether they exert long-term damage on Biden. We'll see there's, you know, he's doing it early in his administration. So he's still got a few years until the election, uh, the, the uh, presidential election, the midterms, you know, it's still over a year away. Um, so hopefully, you know, hope, I think anyone who wants for future presidents um, to do things like this, to sort of defy the media and defy the national security establishment, they should hope that Biden doesn't suffer too much for this in the long run. Because if he does, every next president who wants to do the same thing is gonna think twice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, continuing on that thread about the media, what about just the fact that, um, and you, you mentioned this, uh, alluded to this earlier about the civilian casualties in Afghanistan. Um, we are now, you know, people are naturally sympathetic towards images of, of, you know, people being hurt, obviously, but there's a lot of selective coverage of, you know, when casualties are shown. 
one of the things I thought was an amazing statistic is I think it was like 2018 or 2019, um, the U.S. was causing more civilian casualties in Afghanistan than the Taliban. Um, well, why was that not being covered? Yeah, I mean, so because, yeah, I mean, so what happened was, I mean, and when the, the withdrawal is happening, you know, the media is upset about it that anyway, but everything happens in one central location, right? So it's all at the airport and everyone's gathering there and then a suicide bomber shows up. Uh, there have been suicide bombings and terrorist attacks in Afghanistan all the time. Um, and, you know, the bombing campaign, it was the, this was part of the strategy um, in, the, in the Trump administration, which was you know, not so much relying on ground troops, but really be like, you know, uh, uh, loosening the uh, rules of engagement and letting the military really just start bombing, you know, the Taliban wherever they could. And it didn't work. I mean, the, the Taliban gained territory uh, through the through the Trump administration. And yeah, I mean, there are, you know, these casualties are in remote locations, you know, uh, Afghanistan is remote, but, you know, Kabul is the capital, it's the big city, it's where the media is going to go. There's not a lot of media there. Um, and then it's, it's seen as sort of, you know, normal. I mean, it's not just Afghanistan, we, us bombing people and causing uh, civilian casualties is just completely normal normalized um, and in a way that, you know, if people in America were dying regularly through due to mistakes, you know, uh, by some government institution, it would be, you know, a, a huge deal. Um, and it, it's just, it's just not. And, you know, the, the amount of um, like blowback for all the things that Trump got blowback for, or one thing he didn't was causing more civilian casualties um, and upping the cap bombing campaign abroad. And yeah, this is a moral blindness. This is in part nationalism. This is in part um, the orientation of the uh, of the media and the national security elite who want to see us, you know, involved in every conflict in the world. But yeah, it's a terrible thing, and especially for those on the left. You know, I, I, I respect those who make more of an issue out of it because a lot of people don't. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that when Trump bombed Syria, there were people like Van Jones saying that you know, tonight, you know, Trump really became president. Yeah, like, I think that was Fareed Zakaria. I don't know if that oh, was that uh, him. It, okay, was, okay. It, was C, it was CNN. Yeah, it was the yeah. same yeah, channel. Yeah, that that attitude seems very it, it's almost like um, there was something that Daniel Ellsberg mentioned um, when he was working in the intelligence community, that if you were someone who might be willing to throw out an idea like, oh, let's nuke Vietnam you were immediately considered a more serious person because you were like willing to go there. Yeah. Is that, is that attitude? Um, do you think that infects our media too? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. There's, I guess a, you know, a bias towards doing something and there's, you know, there's always, you know, the, the uh, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's right. And, you know, they have such contempt to the, you know, the story they tell them. So they've told themselves a whole story about history, um, which justifies the U.S. world in the world. So it's like before World War One, we didn't do anything. Um, and then we, you know, finally got dragged into World War One. And then because we were isolationists before World War Two, uh, World War Two happened. And then we realized, you know, we have to rule the world. And then we've been keeping the peace ever since. Right. So it's like, you know, there's problems with, you know, every piece of that story, including the fact that, you know, uh, Roosevelt, uh, you know, sort of wanted the U.S. to get into the conflict and was maneuvering in order to get the U.S. into World War II. And, you know, the, the, the crimes of Stalin and, you know, our, our ally um, is sort of swept under the rug. And, uh, and, you know, the fact that the war led to Eastern Europe falling to communism and then China falling to communism, you know, not all of that just sort of gets, gets ignored. Uh, I had Sean McMeekin on my own podcast, who's a great historian, uh, who wrote a book called Stalin's War, where it really goes into it. I encourage people to, to go listen to it. What's the name of your podcast? 
uh, the CSPI podcast, Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Um, and so just look up CSPI podcast. People can can find it and just find the one on uh, uh, Sean McMeekin. Um, it's it's from a few months ago. Uh, but yeah, his book is called Stalin's War. So it's, it's, a, it's a great book. I, I highly recommend it about, you know, first a sort of a a, a history of World War II that uh, brings out all the facts that sort of get uh, got swept under the rug from the perspective of Stalin, not from the American perspective, but obviously the Americans, you know, uh, f- play a large role in it. Um, and so, yeah, they told them, so, and it's it's not like, it, it, you know, it's not falsifiable, like no matter how badly things get, they always think like without the US, it's gonna be worse. So, you know, Afghanistan's been a disaster, Iraq's been a disaster, Syria's been a disaster, Libya's been a disaster. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know what sort of, will get these people to snap out of it. I, you know, I think just the financial incentives and the idea and the sort of the ideological orientation is just too much for sort of facts to penetrate. Yeah, I, I love what you said there about the bias towards doing something. There, there, there's a great uh, like anecdote of, of, or just like a made up story of, you know, back in prehistoric days, there was a guy throwing young women into a volcano. Someone's like, why are you doing that? They're like, well, we've had a drought for six weeks. And they're like, yeah, but what's that going to do? They're like, okay, so what's your idea? <laughs> like, you know, we got to do something. That, um, and, and when it comes to this withdrawal now, um, the public relations fiasco for the Biden administration. Was this avoidable? Uh, so it's, you know, it's hard to think what, you know, there's nothing obvious um, that the Biden administration could have done that was better. So a lot of people, you know, the, everyone has a talking point now. And so they'll say, you know, he should have, they should have used Bagram Air Base, which is a base about 40 or 50 miles north of Kabul, which the U.S. gave up. Well, I mean, you have to get everyone there. You know, people, the, uh, the um, uh, Hamad Karzai International Airport, that is, you know, where everyone is, which is right, right there in the middle of the capital. Um, so, you know, taking everybody to Bagram Air Base, I don't think was ever realistic. Um, you know, people say, you should have, uh, you know, you should have left earlier. You know, you should have left at a different time. I mean, they, they, they were, what the Biden administration was saying was they couldn't meet the May, May 1st uh, deadline that the Trump administration set uh, because, they, um, because they, they needed to plan the logistics of it, right? They needed to start, start getting people out. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but, you know, they were aware of the I, the aware of the fact that they had to get ready for this. And I don't know like what the people in the Trump administration were actually doing. I'm starting to think now because his um, his last defense secretary and uh, Mike Pompeo have basically come out and say it was a conditions-based withdrawal, which means, you know, no withdrawal. I mean, there would have been, there would have been no withdrawal at all if that was the case, because the conditions were not good. The Afghan government was, was losing. So I don't know if they were trying to fool Trump or maybe they're just lying. They want to make Biden look bad and they want to say we, we, uh, uh, we could have done it better. You know, I suspect more likely they were trying to fool Trump and just, you know, keep us there forever. Um, or maybe, maybe they had a, maybe they did have a plan to, you know, just hand the country over to the, to the Taliban. Uh, uh, Trump's last defense secretary said that uh, the idea was a unity government, which would be like 75% Taliban and 25%. They're like, that's crazy. I mean, that's not going to work. I mean, the, the government was nothing. It didn't exist. Um, why would the Taliban do that? Maybe, maybe they were covering themselves and they were just going to give it completely to the Taliban, which would mean that, uh, you know, just openly facilitating it, which would put them to sort of 
uh, you know, which is contradictory to what Republicans are attacking Biden for now, because it's like, you're too friendly with the Taliban. Yeah, the Trump administration was either going to be more friendly with the Taliban or was going to stay forever, or it was going to, um, it was going to, you know, have an even more incompetent withdrawal because it was going to be done earlier with, you know, less time for preparation. So, you know, it's a, there's all these options that could have happened, but no matter which way you attack um, the Biden administration from, uh, it just poses more problems. It just, you know, leads to more questions about exactly what you would have done differently. Um, so yeah, this is, I mean, this is, this is the problem. Now people are paying attention. Now people see how hard the situation is in Afghanistan when they never saw it before. And, you know, if you stay, you stay there for 10 years, it doesn't get that much attention. You know, you have a, a withdrawal that has, you know, a couple of attacks or you have some casualties and then that becomes, that gets more coverage in the, the entire war. You know, the, the incentive structure here for leaders is just very, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 it's in a bad place. It's going to basically, um, it's almost designed to keep them, you know, involved in these conflicts. Yeah. And that, that was the, the, I like that point because it speaks to something that I heard Obama say when people would ask him, you know, well, why didn't you withdraw from Afghanistan? And he would say something along the lines of like, well, when you're in the room and you're making these decisions, it's very different. Um, which I imagine is true when you actually have the weight of that responsibility on you. But how much of that quality of being in the room is just thinking to yourself, listen, I'm the president. I'm going to be the guy who gets blamed for the inevitable Taliban takeover that's going to happen. So why don't I just kick the can down the road and let the next guy figure it out? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, presidents want to portray themselves as their, you know, sober decision makers and all they're thinking about is good the good of the country and the good of the world. And maybe part of that is true. So they say, you know, that's what he means by I'm in the room, but look, they're, they're politicians. And they're always thinking about, you know, they're, they're clearly thinking politically. That's how they got into their, uh, their position. Uh, so yeah, I mean, maybe there's some of that personal responsibility there, but there's also just, you know, there's just, you know, being political. I, I think nobody would deny that. I see. And given we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but given the this week's, uh, you know, some American troops got killed, uh, do you anticipate any changes to the withdrawal, the timetable of it or? No, no, it's, 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 it's over. I, I think I, you know, they're, they're by the 31st, looks like that's gonna, so today's Friday. So that's, uh, uh, you know, that's like Tuesday. Yeah, I think, I think, I think this is, that's, you know, I think that's what the Biden administration has its mind set to do. Uh, after the attack, they, you know, Biden gave a speech where he made clear that these were the enemies of the Taliban. They're still saying things about Taliban being, uh, you know, um, you know, cooperating as, as they try to facilitate the U.S. leaving, even though there's reports that the Taliban, you know, sort of are not letting people through. I don't you know. I don't know how how reliably, to, you know, how reliable those reports are. The media reports a lot of things sometimes that turn out not to be true um, that, you know, fit their sort of ideological preconceptions. Um, but everything about the Biden administration, you know, you, you know, it, it would be it would be crazy. To, I mean, it would be just a. Uh, you know, I, I think they, they just, they, they need to end this. I mean, this is, they need to, for the, it's, a, it's the right thing to do because, you know, we have, there's no hope of us, you know, changing this. There's no hope of us going back and defeating the Taliban and starting the whole war over. That's, that's basically what we'd be doing at this point. Um, and then politically, they just have to, they just have to get through this because yeah, they, you're, you can't just start a whole new war that that's going to leave this on the front pages forever. It's going to just, it'll, you know, it'll, uh, it won't have popular support, even though this withdrawal doesn't have popular support, restarting the war not going to have popular support either. Um, so yeah, I, I anticipate the, uh, the, the withdrawal is going to finish on time. Uh, this is a, a hard question to answer, but how much, when you say it doesn't have popular support, how much of that do you think is just, can be attributed to the fact that the media has been blasting out images of how bad this withdrawal 
Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's all it is. I mean, the media, I mean, people don't, you know, they don't have personal experience with the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. They don't, they don't know the details. So, you know, it often depends on how you ask the question. So you say, you know, do you still support the withdrawal from Afghanistan? And people will say yes. And then, you know, you'll say, you'll change the words a little bit. What about the, if the Taliban take, or the Taliban are already taken over? Then people will say, you know, they'll be less likely to say um, they support the withdrawal. So, you know, the, 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 the polls really depend a lot on how you ask the question. Uh, people are... Um, <clears throat> most polls I've seen people are still overall in favor of the withdrawal. You just have to sort of add more things. If you just ask them, you know, the fairest way to go is just ask them why you favor withdrawal. If you add a bunch of things, you know, you can change that um, to the question. Um, but then everyone, but, uh, you know, a vast majority think that the withdrawal is going poorly and, you know, people don't have, you know, a strong, I mean, the people who want to stay in Afghanistan haven't made a strong case, you know, people sort of know that this thing has been adrift for a really long time, uh, but anyone can say it's a bad withdrawal and, you know, that people can find that convincing. So there's there people think the withdrawal has been handled badly. Um, Biden's poll numbers they were slipping before the Afghanistan um, new, uh, before Afghanistan came in the news, but they've been slipping more. It's you know it's most certainly had some kind of effect. Um, and you know the question is just what the what the long term effect will be. I think that you know there's uh, you know I think this I think this uh, the focus on this can only hurt Biden. Um, it can't help him right. It's going to be a disaster either way. It's going to be a withdrawal that looks ugly or it's going to be continuing the war, you know, you can get it off the front page. I think that's all you can do. And you do that by just completing the withdrawal. And I, I hate to put things in such crass terms, but is there anyone to blame here? Like a lot of people are saying, you know, oh, this is, this is Biden's war now, you know, after two decades of being there. Um, is, is there someone who, or a group of people, do, do you accept that Biden is to blame for how, uh, how things have gone with the, the speed with which the Taliban took over? And no, that I mean, Biden will be the last person to blame for that. I mean, this has been an army we've been trying to build for uh, 20 years. I think the people uh, you have to, I think I think if you're going to really single out a group of people over the last 20 years, it's um, it has to be the generals. So it has to be people like H.R. McMaster, uh, David Petraeus, Stanley McChrystal. They really went out of their way to say this war was going great. I mean, they have so much, you know, they have so much prestige. They you put pressure on politicians. They were leaking things to the media. Um, if you're going to identify one powerful interest group in Washington that was pushing for keeping this war forever and would have been keeping, you know, would have been for uh, keeping this war going even longer, uh, it's them. But, you know, there's blame to go around. I mean, Obama and Trump, they should have both stood up to their generals. Uh, the Bush administration was, as we talked about, obviously neg neglectful both here and in Iraq and, you know, other places too. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's plenty of blame to go around. Um, and if you're going to, yeah, if you're going to focus on anybody, I think, I think the generals are sort of the institutional uh, um, the institutional sort of locus of all of this. And they're the ones creating, changing the political incentives for politicians. And, and speaking of uh, incentives, and we we're talking about the machine there earlier, um, one thing I wanted to make sure I asked you about, do, do you know much about the, the opium trade in Afghanistan? I, I've just heard stories of like troops guarding opium fields and, uh, you know, crazy things like that. Is, is that what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, they were. I think the U.S. was going back and forth on this. So they were, uh, they went, you know, for eradicate eradicating the opium, and then they were, you know, okay with the opium. Um, yeah, I, and it became, you know, the the sort of it became a cash crop for the Taliban. Eventually, the Taliban, you know, they they the Taliban had, elim had basically eliminated it while they were in power, and then brought it back because it was it was good for funding them when they needed it during the uh, the insurgency. You know, is there? A, I, I don't think there's like a. You know, I don't think. 
there is a greater, you know, I, I don't think there's a greater significance in the sense that the U.S. was there to sell opium or steal opium or, or anything like that. Right. It's just, it's just, a, it's just one of those strange things where like we were trying to do everything, and one of the things we were doing is you know like DEA kind of missions and just trying to you know take away these people's cash crops, which was just one complication on top of everything else. And uh, what what comes next here then? Um, we have this attack, which is uh, ISIS-K, I, I believe is, is uh, said to be responsible for it. Um, I don't know if that's, is that an offshoot of ISIS? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's, a, it's an affiliate. I, I don't know if it's anyone, you know, it, it, the, anyone can call themselves ISIS. So I think there's a, they're a, a, a more extreme brand, basically a, a branch of the Taliban. They broke off from the Taliban um, and they're, you know, they're more extreme and they call themselves ISIS, which I think signifies a more, uh, a more international focused mission while the Taliban is more focused on just Afghanistan. Okay. And um, there have been, I've heard some people in the national security establishment say things like, okay, well, now that we've left Afghanistan, the terror threat is back. Um, what, what is politically, what do you see happening here? Do you see generals trying to get us back into some other war, um, politicians maneuvering this to pin something on Biden. What, what, what comes next year? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. I mean, there, the Lindsey Graham and um, uh, a Senator Mike Waltz, a, a congressman, were saying, uh, you know, uh, recognize, you know, a few holdouts in the northeast of the country and then in the, in the uh, Hindu Kush um, that are basically, you know, holding out on their surrounding by the Taliban. They say recognize them as the legitimate gover- government of Afghanistan. So there's people on the right who are saying, don't recognize the Taliban, just basically start funding an, an insurgency. Um, and, you know, that's not going to happen during the Biden administration. I think the Biden administration is just sort of uh, set on this path. Well, during the, as long as, you know, the Biden administration's in office, I think what they're going to try to do is, uh, you know, talking about the, the journalists who don't like this withdrawal, people in the national security establishment and a lot of politicians, um, they're going they're going to make it difficult to have any kind of normal relations with the Taliban. So they're going to be going out of their way to report anything bad that the Taliban does. Of course, they'll do things bad, but, you know, there'll, there'll be an extra focus on that compared to other bad things people are doing in the world. Um, there will be, uh, you know, an exaggeration, exaggeration of, of, of the terrorist threat. I don't think the terrorist threat is really much of a threat at all. I mean, Pakistan and Afghanistan have been seeing terrorist attacks and terrorist organizations the whole time we've been there 20 years. Um, you know, there, there's there's just not much of a threat to the United States. I mean, that, that's just a, a fact that people don't acknowledge. I mean, there's there's no there's no incentive for uh, terrorists to, to attack the United States. And there's no um, and there's generally no, uh, uh, you know, it's difficult for them to get over here and have context over here. So there's a difficulty thing. And then there's an, uh, there's an incentive, there's an incentive issue. Um, but you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have, you know, intelligence reports. They'll say it's, it'll be interesting to see how much they cover Afghanistan because it's um, such a, you know, if the U S is not there, it's such a um, isolated part of the world. Um, they're not going to have, you know, bureaus, a lot of bureaus, a lot of reporters there. So it's going to be sort of, we're just going to be hearing things uh, secondhand. So in which case it's hard to keep, you know, the pressure up. Uh, but yeah, I think they, I think they realize that this is, this is a loss and whether you know, and they're, they're fighting Biden on a lot of things. They're fighting Biden on, uh, on relations with Russia. They want him, they, you know, they want him to be tougher. There are some people who don't want him to go back, uh, try to get into the Iran nuclear deal. And if there's long-term damage to the Biden administration, uh, I think they'll be trying to use the leverage um, against him. And if Biden bounces back, you know, this this will be just a complete loss for them because they'll, you know, they'll, he, he will have defied them. He will have ended a war and then turned out okay. 
And, and last thing I want to, uh, in there, you said the terrorists don't have an incentive to attack the United States homeland. Is that just because it would invite uh, another invasion? Uh, or what? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I mean, some people do because they, you know, so the... Um, uh, so the, the 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 you know the ISIS the ISIS K attack makes sense in the sense that they don't care about what the Taliban wants is the U.S. to leave Afghanistan. ISIS K wants not the Taliban to control the country. They want they care about their own global jihad, right? Um, and so that the, so their, their you know their strategy it's better for them if the U.S. actually stays and by attacking the U.S. on the way out they can they can get legitimacy they can get prestige, um, you know. But but at the same time they can potentially uh, have the war continue. Um, some groups are like that, but not a lot of groups are like that because most groups just have political goals, right? It's not just go kill the U.S. and then what? And then, you know, what, what you killed a bunch of Americans, what does that do? They usually want to control territory. So even in uh, in Syria, these uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates have gotten have gotten territory and they want more territory. They want to, you know, overthrow the government, but that's what they want. They want to overthrow the government. They're not going to overthrow Washington, right? Nobody has it. And so just because some terrorist organization 20 years ago um, pulled off a, a major terrorist attack, all those people, you know, are Debtor, almost all of them are debtor in jail now. It doesn't mean that this is a constant threat. We have to keep fighting and we have to fight wars because somebody who looks like them or someone who has the same religious religion as them, you know, might attack us at some point. I think the the whole idea of there's this you know quote unquote terror threat that's going to threaten the you know the homeland as they call it. Um, I think that I think that's just a, a terrible paradigm. But I think it's led us you know led us astray over the last two decades. Richard, uh, on that note, I think we should, uh, I, th- I think it's a good note to end it on. But before, uh, how can people find you? Um, uh, they can, yeah, they can, I have a Substack. So Richard Hanania, H-A-N-A-N-I-A uh, dot Substack.com. You can Google my name. I have a, a Twitter account. I have an organization, uh, cspicenter.org. We also um, have a mailing list, CSPI Center. We also have a, uh, a Twitter account. So yeah, not, not hard to find. Excellent. All right, Richard, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Thank you to Richard Hanania, and thank you for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.